Welcome to our weekly podcast. It is so good to be back with our church family today. My family had a great time on vacation, but we certainly missed home. We were able to do some exciting things on our time off, and one highlight was having the opportunity to visit the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. We've been to several museums over the years, and I can say with absolute certainty that the Creation Museum and the Ark stand head and shoulders above them all. I would encourage everyone to consider making the trip if you can. In fact, if the opportunity presents itself, I'd like to lead a church-sponsored trip to both of these museums at some point in the near future. I do want to thank our elders for graciously allowing us to take some time off. You know, they've always been extremely generous in this way. And I also want to thank our staff and our ministry leaders for serving and leading in our absence. Also, a huge thank you to Rich Pierce for preparing and preaching the message last week. If you have a Bible with you, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the New Testament letter of Philemon. Philemon is a short letter. There's only one chapter consisting of 25 verses, and it's sandwiched between Titus and Hebrews. I've found that if you're not careful, it's really easy to overlook. Although this letter only consists of one chapter, what it lacks in length it makes up for in power and purpose. Written as a letter from the Apostle Paul to his dear friend Philemon, it also serves as an important parable or illustration of what Jesus has done for us. We're going to talk about this a lot more over the next few weeks. Today we're beginning a three-week series on the letter of Philemon, and I'd like to begin by reading all 25 verses you can follow along in your physical Bible, or you can use the YouVersion Bible app on your phone or tablet. Philemon chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This letter is from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus, and from our brother Timothy. I'm writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister Aphia, and to our fellow soldier Archippus, and to the church that meets in your house. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. And I'm praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother. For your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. That is why I am boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it's the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, I prefer simply to ask. Consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he's very useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I wanted to keep him here with me while I'm in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you. He's more than a slave, for he's a beloved brother, especially to me. 
Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, and I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Yes, my brother, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I'm confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. One more thing. Please prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, friends, there are so many great truths packed into these 25 verses. I happen to be a visual learner. I'm sure many of you are as well. So to help provide some context before we go deeper into the content, to give us an overview of what this letter is all about, we're going to watch a video on Sunday morning that was put together by the Bible Project. Uh, They've done such a great job at providing a visual storyline for what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. Now, listening to a podcast, uh, you can't see with your eyes what they're going to see on Sunday, but I thought we would listen to it together as well. Paul's letter to Philemon. It was written during one of Paul's many imprisonments, and it's actually his shortest letter in the New Testament, but don't let its size trick you. It's actually one of the most explosive things that Paul ever wrote. Here's the backstory that we can piece together from details within the letter. Philemon was a well-to-do Roman citizen from Colossae who likely met Paul during his mission in Ephesus, and he became a follower of Jesus. Then later, when Paul's co-worker Epaphras started a Jesus community in Colossae, Philemon became a leader of a church that met in his house. Now, Philemon, like all household patriarchs in the Roman world, owned slaves, one of whom was named Onesimus. And at some point, these two had a serious conflict. Onesimus wronged Philemon in some way. Maybe it was theft, or maybe he cheated him. We don't exactly know. But afterwards, Onesimus ran away. Eventually, Onesimus came to Paul in prison, likely to appeal for help. And in the process, he became a follower of Jesus, and then a beloved assistant of Paul. And so Paul finds himself in a very difficult and delicate situation as he writes this letter. He's going to ask Philemon not just to forgive Onesimus and receive him back, but to embrace him as a brother in the Messiah and no longer as a slave. Here's how he does it. Paul opens with a prayer, first praising Philemon and thanking God for the love and faithfulness he's shown to Jesus, to his people. And he then paves the way for his request with this line. I pray that the partnership that springs from your faith may effectively lead you to recognize all the good things that work in us, leading us into the Messiah. Now, a key word here is partnership, or in Greek, koinonia. It means sharing or mutual participation. It's when two or more people receive something together and share in it, becoming partners. Paul's saying that faithfulness to Jesus means recognizing that all of his followers are equal partners who share together in the gift of God's love and grace. And for Paul, this experience of koinonia among Jesus' followers, it's not just an idea that you think about, it's something that you do in your relationships, which moves Paul on to his request. He finally brings up Onesimus, 
He says that he's become Paul's child in prison, meaning that Paul led Onesimus to dedicate his life and allegiance to Jesus. And so Paul and Onesimus are now family members in the Messiah. He's been serving Paul faithfully in prison. And even though Paul wants to keep him around, he knows that this unresolved conflict with Philemon has to be reconciled if they say that they're followers of Jesus, which moves Paul on to his bold request that Philemon receive Onesimus back no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a beloved brother in the Lord. Now, this is a really tall order. Under Roman law, Philemon had every legal right to have Onesimus punished or put in prison. And Paul's not only asking him to forgive Onesimus, but to welcome back his former slave into Colossae as a social equal, as a family member. This is way more than kindness. This is unheard of. It's freeing a slave and then treating them like a family member. It upsets the status quo of the Roman social order. Why should Philemon do such a thing? And here Paul pulls a brilliant move. He recalls that key word from the opening prayer. He says, if you're truly a partner with me, it's that Greek word koinonia again, then welcome Onesimus as if he were me. And if he's wronged you or owes you anything, charge it to me and I will repay it. So in this request, we see the heart of Paul's gospel message being acted out. It's first of all about reconciliation. It's just like he told the Corinthians. In the Messiah, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. So in this situation, Paul is putting himself in the place of Jesus. He will absorb the consequences of Onesimus' wrongdoing. He will pay the cost so that he can be reconciled to Philemon. But Paul's message was about more than just a legal transaction. It's also about koinonia. Onesimus and Philemon and Paul are all equals before God. They all share the same need for forgiveness. And so the ground is level before the cross, which means that Philemon and Onesimus can no longer relate to each other as master and slave. They're family members. They're brothers in the Messiah. Or as Paul told Philemon and the whole church of Colossae, in God's new family, people are not Greek or Jewish or circumcised or uncircumcised or foreigners or uncivilized or slave or free, but the Messiah is all and is in all people. Paul closes the letter stating his confidence that Philemon will do even more than Paul's requested. And he asks him to prepare a guest room because he wants to visit as soon as he gets out of prison. And then with some final greetings, Paul ends the letter. Paul's letter to Philemon is powerful for many reasons. It's the only letter where Paul doesn't explicitly mention Jesus' death or resurrection, and this is not an oversight. He doesn't need to explain the cross with words because he's demonstrating it through his actions. Paul's embodying here the meaning of the cross. He has made himself the place through which Onesimus and Philemon are reconciled to God and then to each other. This letter also shows us that the implications of the good news about Jesus, they are extremely personal and never private. The fact that Philemon and Onesimus are now brothers in the Messiah, it makes their master-slave relationship totally irrelevant. The family of Jesus' people is the place where all are equal recipients of God's grace. It's a new kind of society, or a new humanity, as he called it in the letter to the Colossians, where people's value and social status, it's not defined by race, or gender, or social, or economic class. In the Messiah, there are simply new humans. 
who are equal partners, who share together in God's healing mercy through Jesus. And that's what Paul's letter to Philemon is all about. There are some important words and themes throughout this letter. Words like faith, love, generosity, kindness, partnership, or koinonia, and brother or sister in Christ. There are some important themes like grace, restoration, forgiveness, reconciliation, and faithfulness. We're going to talk about all of these words and all of these themes over the next few weeks and what they mean for our lives today as we seek to follow Jesus. Today, we're going to focus in on the first seven verses. This portion of the letter acts as a greeting and a prayer of thanksgiving from Paul's own heart to his friend Philemon, to his sister in Christ, Aphia, and to his fellow soldier, Archippus, and to the church that met in Philemon's home. There's a lot that we can learn and apply to our own lives from Paul's initial greeting and prayer. Let's begin with the first three verses. This letter is from Paul a prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. I am writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister Aphia, and to our fellow soldier Archippus, and to the church that meets in your house. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Paul was not the one who planted the church in Colossae, and he had not visited the church at this point in his life. Most commentators and theologians believe that the church in Colossae and the church that met in Philemon's home, which was in Colossae, was planted as a result of the ministry that had been done and was being done in Ephesus. Like today, Christian churches in the first century came in all shapes and sizes. Some met in buildings and others met in homes. Some were rural and others were more urban. Some were established and mature in their faith, and others were made up of new believers who were new to the faith. Largely fanned by persecution and God's commission to his people to make disciples, the good news about Jesus rapidly spread from city to city and then from nation to nation. Paul had helped plant the church in Ephesus, and Timothy was called to serve as their pastor. If the church in Colossae was a direct result of the good work that had been done in Ephesus, that means that Paul and Timothy's fingerprints, as well as many others, were all over what God was doing in and through the church in Colossae. This church, you need to understand, was far from perfect. You know, there's no such thing as a perfect church this side of heaven. And one of the main issues in the church was false teaching. This is what Paul sought to address in the book of Colossians. With that being said, lives were still being changed. Lives were being transformed as people believed in the good news about Jesus. That leads us to our first point for today, if you're taking notes. Your fingerprints are all over the people you serve. See, Paul had never been to Colossae, yet the good work that was being done was in large part the result of what faithful Christians had done in the past. What does this have to do with our lives today? As you serve in a particular ministry, the work that you do matters. As you interact with people throughout your day, the words that you say matter. As you go to work Monday through Friday or whenever your work hours are, how you spend your time matters. Friends, God is able to multiply the work that you do today in order to have a kingdom impact on tomorrow. This reminds me of Billy Graham's story. It's estimated that Billy Graham was able to preach the gospel 
to over 215 million people throughout his life. This is amazing. I don't know if there's anyone who hasn't at least heard the name Billy Graham, but if you haven't, let me give you some backstory on how he first came to Christ. The story of Billy Graham's conversion is actually well known. In the fall of 1934, a guy by the name of Mordecai Ham, he was a Baptist revivalist. He came to Charlotte, North Carolina, and preached a revival that lasted several weeks. The Graham family didn't attend for the first week or so, but Billy was eventually invited to go by a family friend and to listen to Ham's sermons. In response to one of his sermons on the topic of sin, Billy made the decision to believe in Jesus and to follow him with his life. Later on that evening, Billy shared his experience with his family. He said to his parents, and I quote, I have been saved tonight. As important as this experience was, it's worth noting that this revival was not the first time Billy had heard about Jesus. By the time he'd heard Ham's sermon, Billy had already experienced nearly two decades of Christian formation in the home and through his local church. Both of his parents were raised in the church, and they prioritized taking their four kids to church each week. Billy once said, from the time his mom and dad were married, they prioritized family devotions in the home. They prayed together, and they read scripture together. So throughout his childhood, his family and his church family poured into his life. His early Christian formation made a huge impact on his life, and God used those seasons to lead him to faith. Countless fingerprints were all over his life. I tell you this story to encourage you and to remind you that the work you do for God matters. Your faith is first and foremost a byproduct of what God has done and is doing in your life, but it's also the result of how others have poured into your life over the years. So whether it's serving on the worship team, you know, leading the congregation in worship each week, whether it's serving in our children's ministry where you have the opportunity to share Jesus with our young people, whether it's serving on our fellowship ministry where you help plan fun and creative ways to bring people together, or whether it's in other ways that God has called you to serve, your fingerprints will be all over the people you serve. Friends, God is able to multiply the work that you do today in order to have a kingdom impact on tomorrow. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Let us not become weary of doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I understand as much as the next person how discouraging ministry can be when you don't see immediate results for the work that you put in. But God encourages us to keep doing the good work that he's given us and to trust him with the results. The promise is that at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. In his initial greeting and prayer, Paul mentions several people by name. He mentioned Timothy, his brother in the faith, Philemon, his dear friend and beloved co-worker. He mentioned Aphia, his sister in Christ, and Archippus, his fellow soldier. Philemon chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, This letter is from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Jesus Christ. And from our brother Timothy, I'm writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister Aphia, and to our fellow soldier Archippus, and to the church that meets in your house. So even though Philemon was meant to be the primary recipient of this letter, Paul took the time to express his deep love and appreciation for his friends. 
And that reminds us that Paul's ministry was always done with a team. We see this example throughout the New Testament. Paul never viewed ministry as a solo act. He knew that it was meant to be done within the context of community. And that leads us to our second point for the day. If you're taking notes, true ministry takes a team. It always takes a team. You and I were created by God with a need for relationship and with a need for community. God's plan, his design is that we would build our relationships and experience authentic biblical community within the context of the church, the body of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have friends who are non-believers. Jesus himself was known as a friend of sinners. But it does mean that this is meant to be home base for us. Christians need the church and everyone is needed in the church if the church is going to thrive. So if you are listening to the podcast today and you believe the lie that you are not loved, that you're not wanted, or that your life somehow lacks purpose and meaning, listen to what we learn about the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 12 through 21, and then I'm also going to read verse 27. This is powerful. It says, The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. And so it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, Some are slaves and some are free. But we've all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if the whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it had only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. And then verse 27, Paul writes, all of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. So true ministry takes a team. It takes a body. As you serve God with the gifts that he's given you, it should rarely be done alone. Everyone has value in the body of Christ. Everyone has purpose in the body of Christ. And everyone is needed in the body of Christ. Your fingerprints will be all over the people you serve. And true ministry takes a team. These are two important truths that are clearly woven throughout this incredible letter. Paul often began his letters with life-giving words and a reminder of the faithful work that was being done by the people to whom he was writing. And this letter is no different. In his initial greeting, he described Philemon as a man of love and faith, both towards God and towards God's people. Listen to Paul's description of his friend in verses 4 through 7. He wrote, I always thank my God when I pray for you. Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. And I'm praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. What do we learn about Philemon in just these few short verses? We learn that he had a genuine or a sincere faith in Jesus. We learn that he had a sacrificial, service-oriented kind of love towards God's people. 
This was a Philippians 2 kind of love. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. This is the kind of humility and love that would be needed moving forward because Paul was about to ask Philemon to do something that would not have been easy to do. As Philemon continued to grow in his faith, God gave him more opportunities to put his faith to work. And this is what happens in our lives as well. And that's going to lead us to our third and final point. And that is, as you grow in your faith, God will give you more opportunities to put your faith to work. It's kind of a long point. But it's true. As you grow in your faith, God will give you more opportunities to put your faith to work. Paul told Philemon that he was praying for him and asking God to make his witness effective so that others would come to know Jesus as well. He also prayed that his friend would have a deeper understanding of all the good things that we have in Christ. And this encouragement, this reminder, they were necessary because of what Paul was about to ask him to do in the body of his letter. So what did he ask him to do? What is this big favor? Well, for that, you'll have to come back next week. (laughs) This week, you can be reminded that your fingerprints are all over the people you serve. You know, the work that you do for God, it matters. You can be reminded that true ministry always takes a team. You are needed in the body of Christ. There's a place for you. We're all meant to work together. And as you grow in your faith, God will give you more opportunities to put your faith to work. Your faith is meant to be lived out so that others can have a clear picture of who Jesus is.